Hey everyone, and welcome to this special soapbox edition of the Brisky Business Podcast. My name's Patrick Gray. And for those of you who don't know uh, or who are new here, this isn't the regular weekly show. Uh, these soapbox editions are wholly sponsored, and that means everyone you hear in one of these special editions paid to be here. And in this podcast, we're going to talk uh, to Randall Deggs, who leads the developer relations and community team at Sneak. Sneak, of course, makes a bunch of tooling to help people write secure software, uh, quite a well-known company in the space. And uh, yeah, Randall's here to talk to us about how to get developers enthusiastic about security, uh, how to get them to use the right tooling, and how this tooling is going to evolve in the future to actually help developers fix bugs in their code instead of just identifying them. It is a high-level chat, but it's one that I really enjoyed uh, and the part towards the end about how companies like Sneak can build something like GitHub's, uh, well, frankly, poorly received co-pilot tool, uh, but instead focused on security. I mean, that's really interesting, right? If you want to see uh, or get an idea of where some of this tooling is going. Anyway, here is the interview with Randall Deggs from Sneak. I do hope you enjoy it. Security isn't actually as hard as I think a lot of developers have this impression that it has to be, you know? I feel like uh, when I was coming up and when I was uh, a younger engineer and st starting to learn about security and, you know, how do you build secure software? How do you prevent all these like vulnerabilities from creeping into your code base over time? What are the best practices you need to follow? One of the things that I would run into is you would see lots of security professionals on places like security.stackexchange or wherever they'd be online saying, ah, be really careful as a developer, like leave security up to the professionals. Like, like you shouldn't be messing with that. That was sort of like the can't, overall- Can't win, so why try? That was, what a great yeah, attitude. It, like <laughs> that really bothers me as an engineer because A, it's fun to learn things. And I feel like engineers by default, they're just trying to figure stuff out and solve problems. And it's it's annoying to have people tell you like, don't solve a problem. Like it like is offensive yeah. almost. And so the first thing I would say is as a developer, you don't have to listen to that advice. You can go and you can do security. Like it's not that hard. You can figure it out. You know, you're smart. Like there's a lot of good resources out there. There's a lot of techniques and practices and a lot of great tools that really help build secure software today that didn't exist like 10 years ago. So that's the first thing I would just say. Like it is something developers should learn about, should actually get engaged with. And it's really fun if you get into it the right way. So we can talk about that later. But that'd be the first thing. Um, the second thing I would say is... I, you know, a lot of developers, they think that they might do a good job at security purely from like a, you know, uh, I write, I write good code quickly. Right. So obviously it's secure. Yeah. No, I've, I've, I've encountered them in the wild. They exist. It's true. I mean, I used to be one of those people for sure. I would literally <laughs> yeah. be working on some software and I'd say, Oh my God, this, this function is so elegant. This is going to be a, like, if my coworker saw this, they would be so impressed with me, you know? And uh, I had to get, I guess, a bit of an ego about it. And um, when you're working on things, you look at it, you analyze it, but you're always approaching it from like one angle usually. What am I doing to get this to work? How simple is it? Like things like that. And what I would also want people to know is stuff can get extremely complicated. There's a lot of ways to abuse a particular piece of code or the way code intersects with other pieces of code. And you really oftentimes do need proper tooling and support and education to be able to make things truly secure, truly reliable, truly performant. So you can't look at it just in a black box on your own. You really need help. And that's one of the things that's great about the security community and the developer community is people are always sharing interesting information. They're always putting stuff out there. And that's what keeps this industry interesting, at least to me over all the years, 
is uh, there's always new stuff to learn and focus on. So yeah, those are the two well, things. Well, I mean, up. it's interesting too, because what, what, what you just described is, is like a spectrum, right? Where do you give guidance to developers who want to start on the journey of actually learning how to create secure software? There's that starting point, which is, hey, it's not so hard. Maybe read these few things about like uh, common pitfalls and things like that. But when it starts getting up into the you know, boundary between different sets of code and all those unexpected things. That's when you're going from being a, you know, security conscious developer into almost being a specialist software security person, right? Like, is is, is that how it is? Is there like that spectrum? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I hate to even say some of these things, but, you know, one of the basic things you need to learn as a software engineer is you have to leverage tools just like you do when you're writing software, right? Like when I work on software, I'm using web frameworks most of the time to build API services or unit testing frameworks to help build unit tests in a nicer way. You can't really just rely on doing everything raw at a low level all on your own. Um, the yeah. way I think a lot of people view it today, still to this day, just because security education is not very widespread in the developer community, is people tend to say, oh, well, what does it mean to have secure code? They'll look at a they will literally look at a pull request. They will analyze the code with their eyes, do code review, and say, oh, this is, uh, this is interesting. It looks like there might be a way to abuse this user input. I need to add some sanitation there or whatever. That's really the extent of what people do for development security. The reality though is, like I said before, there's a million ways to abuse stuff. You need to use tooling. So the common way to get started, I would say, is finding a static code analysis tool, uh, SAS tools, SCA tools, basically things that are going to analyze both the custom code that you are writing and give you some real world security feedback on it and say, hey, Randall, you formatted this string improperly when you were building the SQL query. And because of that, you just open yourself up to a SQL injection vulnerability. This is what a good solution looks like. And here's how you should change your code to make that work. That's the first thing. I, it's funny that you mentioned SQLI because that to me seems like one of the bug classes we don't hear as much about these days. Like it, it seems to be one that was everywhere. And now it's like, now it's embarrassing when it turns up. Whereas before it used to be just like every day. Totally. And I mean, I think like frameworks in particular have done a huge job to making that issue mostly a moot point, right? Yeah. You're using ORMs and uh, lots of nice software abstractions to help prevent those things from going on. So that was just like a simple example, but you know, Totally no, right. no, no. It's a good one. It just made me think that like, it, it sort of underscores your point that tooling is actually making a dent, right? Because if it weren't for the tooling, I think we would still be seeing a lot of SQLI out there. Yeah, 100%. And also, I would say massive shout out to all the web developers in the world working on web standards. You have like better security headers nowadays and things that browsers respect to help prevent whole classifications of security issues, which is great. So there's lots of cool progress uh, happening all across the board for sure. So of the developers that you know, and obviously, you know, working in developer relations, you're going to know a lot, an awful lot of developers. Like what got them into this journey of learning about security? Was it something that, because I, I, I meet people of all different types, right? So for a lot of them, it's like, particularly the good ones, it's because it was something that they just naturally developed an interest in and then kind of got hooked, right? And then they became absolute weapons. Then there's other ones where they're like, well, where I work, you know, the mandate just came down. You have to know this stuff. You have to learn this stuff. And it was sort of foisted upon them. But they, they got on the on board and realized it was just something they had to do. And then there's the people who groan and whine because, you know, they're forced to use uh, bad tools often, right, that have been lumped on them by, you know, compliance or security or whatever. Like, what, what, what's, the, what's the most common path, though, for developers who are learning how to do things in a more secure way? Well, it's funny because about two hours before we recorded this podcast, I'm not sure when this is coming out. So if the audience is listening 
who knows how long, but uh, I run this DevSecOps book club and almost all the members of the book club are software developers who have an interest in security. And we just read through security books together. We do a bunch of like, you know, research and stuff like that. And earlier today, we were actually having this exact discussion. How did everyone get started in security? The timing is impeccable here, but it was, it was really <laughs> interesting because I've also always been curious about this. You know, the way I stumbled into it myself was I was really, I was spending a lot of time working on C software and I was a member of all of these IRC channels on Freenode and uh, all the other engineers that were in there, the people that I sort of looked up to were always publishing blog posts and articles, sharing their research and cool things they were working on. And so I started doing that. And I noticed over time that there was a lot of really interesting security techniques and things you had to know. And I always just thought to myself, like, I want to be like, like these people, they have this, you know, they care about software engineering as a craft and they try to do as good of a job as humanly possible to make sure the things they're writing are performant, secure, reliable, that it's going to last for a long time. And I just, it made me excited. You know, no, I get it. I mean, you're one of those people who found your tribe, right? Like that's, that's kind of how it, how it goes. Yeah. And what I heard through the, uh, the book club earlier today was that a lot of people stumbled onto it at their workplace. So as a matter of fact, um, uh, one of the, the book club members, her name's Catherine. She works as a developer at a tech startup in San Francisco. She's been an engineer for a really long time, but she recently got into security because she had a security team reach out to her group internally about some vulnerabilities and they ended up establishing a security champions program. And she just really liked the, the, the process of learning more about the software and trying to find ways to, to make things better. Nowadays, she's actually going through a certification process. I forget the name of the certification, but it's like a developer security certification. And she's really into it. And I think that's been a pretty common thread across groups. Someone, some particularly good security person at, a, at an organization motivates and encourages people and maybe even positively reinforces the work they're doing. And they just get hooked to that feeling. And that's sort of their entryway into the industry. I mean, you've probably guessed why I'm asking this already. I mean, we've got a lot of developers who listen to this podcast, but we also have a lot of CISOs, right? And ultimately, CISOs are responsible for the security of an org and developers are in a different group, yet are the ones who are best positioned to develop, you know, to deliver on that goal, right? So I guess, I guess what I'm wondering is like, what works from the org point of view in terms of, you know, getting dev teams on board with this, uh, with this mission? Sorry to use the word, but, you know, it kind of is. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an amazing question. Uh, for sure, I would say security is like everyone's job. You know, like lots of CISOs talk about that. Uh, and I think it's totally true. And regardless of how you implement it at your company, some people use like the security champions thing. Some people have, you know, security engineers embedded within teams, like helping drive things forward. Like there's all sorts of different models to do it. But I think the main thing for developers is having the security team empower them and enable them to do it on their own. It's not about like stepping in and, providing blockers in the CI system or the CD system or whatever it is. It's not about, you know, forcing them it's to go. It's not about being an invisible hand that stops things going live, exactly. right? Like that's not the way it should go. Yeah, yeah. You know, like you want to be like a partner to the engineers. And I think engineers really respond positively to stuff like that. You know, just for people like myself and the, a lot of the other developers I've spoken to, that's what definitely works the best. You know, having a security person come over to you and say, Hey, I noticed you're doing this thing. Would you mind plugging in this tool? I can show you how it works. Like it does all these cool things. You can actually completely prevent any of these malicious packages from going out. If you incorporate some of these scans early into your process or whatever, there's so many interesting ways I think to just get people on board with the concepts and excited about it. And I think overall, I mean, developers want to do this stuff. So 
showing them how to do it and just being that like positive encouragement voice is super important. So, you know, what if, what if you are responsible for um, the security in an organization where developers aren't using this sort of tooling? Like, how do you then get them on board internally? Like, what's the, what's the way? I mean, you know, the lazy way is just to mandate it. I get that. Sure. But I, I just figure you would have been part of enough sneak rollouts in organizations like that, that you would have a bit of insight into what works. So the question is, just to recap, if you're not using tooling like this, like what's the best way to get developers yes. engaged, right? Yes. Yeah. I would say that the main way would be to literally jump in and help them make things better in that case. So if you don't have the tooling and you can't empower them to do it on their own, I think the next best thing is to jump in and be like their partner. So let's say people are working on this feature branch for like a month and they're like, hey, I got this feature. It's going to be amazing. Instead of coming in at the very end of this, the process and saying, oh, hold up, bunch of issues, right? Uh, get engaged, like literally start being part of their engineering teams, like join the standups, take a look at the code as it's in, in progress, join the code review, join the code review sessions, excuse me, bit of a tongue twister and help get the security insights that you have out of your brain and like into their brain earlier in the process. And that way they but I can use, tell, I can tell like already from the way you reacted to that question that it's quite uncommon to come into an environment where people are using nothing, right? Uh, totally. <laughs> Yeah. So what are people using mostly out there? Are they using like just a mix of commercial and open source or like, you know, what's the, what's the general state of the average developer toolkit these days? Ooh, average developer toolkit, like no security tools whatsoever. Maybe. Okay. Actually, I take that back. It'd probably be something like Dependabot on GitHub. You know, you have like the free sort of available by default tooling that will let you know if the dependencies you're using have a clear known vulnerability. And if you need to update to a, a greater version to like fix that, that would be, I would say, like what a majority of, of projects, that's sort of where security stops for them on the developer side. So looking for other people's CVEs, not so much their own. A hundred percent. Yes, for sure. Yeah. yeah. That And that's probably better than a lot of projects right there, for sure. And how's that changed? Like, is it changing? And in which direction? It's definitely changing more. I mean, there's a lot of things that have changed in the last like five to 10 years that have been big game changers. Like, first of all, Dependabot from GitHub, massive, massive props to the GitHub team because it really democratized a lot of basic security findings for people that developers are completely oblivious about previously, you know, and just having it's some- funny. It's funny how everyone like cracked the shits when uh, Microsoft bought GitHub and then they've just spent the years since doing really cool stuff. They, they do such a good job. Like I love, I, I'm a very proud, happy GitHub user. I think they innovate super well. They always do great. Like I'm a big fan, you know? Uh, and yeah. what they've done for the open source community just overall is like, cannot be understated. Like it is so incredibly useful. So no, no, it's fan. just funny. Cause it's the, it's the exact opposite result that yeah. people were expecting. That's all. Totally. Totally. Okay. I lost track of the question. I'm so sorry. Yeah. No, I was like, you know, how, how is the, you know, the tooling mix with developers changing? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, so how has it changed? Well, there's, there's a few different things. First of all, there's a lot of great open source tools. Sneak has a free open source tool. You don't even need an account to use it, but it's called sneak advisor. Not sure if you've seen it, but basically what it does is it goes off and classifies. It takes a look at open source packages across things like, you know, uh, Docker Hub container images, your, your Python packages on PYPI, your node packages on NPM, all these different things. And it actually downloads the packages, scans them, and tries to understand not just the dependency level vulnerabilities, like known vulnerabilities in a particular dependency, but also in the custom code people are writing, what are some things that are there? Or maybe there's some secrets that people accidentally checked into this package that you're about to install, right? Like all these different things, it'll find those and classify it and give you really interesting security insights. And a lot of the time developers find those things without ever using the tool, just on Google. 
So if I'm on Google and I'm looking up a particular Node package, like maybe Node Express, the popular framework, a lot of the time I'll actually land on one of these security analysis pages, which will give me all this insight and help me just be more conscious of it. I would say the other thing that's changed a lot is just the entire like cloud DevOps type movement that has given developers a lot more insight into the way software is built and deployed. And I think that- Yeah, I think, that, I think that's gone both ways, right? Across that divide. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, there's a lot more like surface ops people, area. ops people actually having to understand software. Like that's also a pretty radical, it's a radical idea 10 years ago anyway. Oh my God, yeah. It's, it's still to this day, right? There's a lot of like, it's not a fully sorted out part of the industry for sure. But I think one of the cool things is while you have this exploding surface area of things that have potential issues, like, you know, you have uh, cloud provisioning uh, environments, you have to worry about IAM policies and Terraform rules and all the different ways these things interact. There's also a lot more uh, knowledge and requirements that developers have to carry. And that can be really useful from a security insights perspective. Because when developers are building web applications, just as an example, they're no longer just thinking about, okay, I need to add this particular endpoint. They're thinking, what HTTP security headers do I need to put on the load balancer to make sure that this is gonna be accessible? Or how am I gonna interact with this other you know, service with their API? And because you have to know some of these other things, it really helps you just be more conscious of the security boundaries between these services. And I think that is, is something else that has really helped push security education along and really reinforce the need for uh, security education for developers and tooling and stuff. Now, this is a question I love to ask, uh, a type of question I love to ask people in your position, which is like, what, what are people struggling with? Like within your constituency of developers, like what are they getting wrong and you know what are they struggling with? Where are the common mistakes now that you're that that you're trying to work on um, helping them uh, get around? Well, I would say it's a little different for people depending on what the types of things they're working on. Like for example, I'll I'll cover it from like the commercial perspective first. Like what are what did what is your typical developer at like at like a big enterprise company? What are the things they're struggling with? Because it's very different, you know. Um, on that set on that side, I would say in particular, what developers really struggle with is just understanding where where they need to integrate security into their pipelines. Because you have these big organizations, people are relatively siloed, working on different parts of things, and you really need like holistic tooling and strategies to make sure that everything is getting properly scanned and attributed and things are getting updated in a timely fashion. For individual developers in the open source, in the open source world, the challenges are a lot different. It's more, more so access, I would say like getting enough access and knowledge to use these things. That's the biggest barrier. Um, you know, a lot of the way we get users, just this is like a bit of an offshoot, but a lot of the way that people find and learn about tools like Sneak or like, you know, competitors and alternatives and things like that, is they're literally Googling about how to solve a very particular problem in their software. Like maybe you're Googling, how do I detect if there's leaked secrets in my NPM package or something? And you stumble across a landing page or a blog post or whatever that, walks you through, hey, here's tools you should be using to scan for these things. Here's how you can remediate it. Here are some things you should instrument in your CI pipeline to make sure this doesn't come up again. But just getting that knowledge out there is super, super critical. So I, I guess what you're saying is like people maybe aren't using tooling across a wide enough gamut of the of the sort of development life cycle. Yeah, for, for, for solo hobbyist open source developers, they rarely use these types of tools at all. And then for yeah. larger organizations, they just have a big variety of them and there's a lot of the times disconnects. Like a really great example of that is, uh, you know, 
let's say you're a developer, you're working on this big production application, and you're managing Terraform rules to provision cloud resources on Amazon. You know, that's a relatively common thing. So you're working on that. Things are going through code review. You might be doing some code scans with security tooling and stuff, and you understand that things are pretty good. And so you ship it and like, that's fine. Rules fire yeah, off. But you made a mistake with your Terraform policy or something, right? Yeah. Or you know, maybe there's no mistake, but things are running in production. And then your security team over here on a totally different environment is monitoring your live AWS instances and running their own security tooling. So now you have two different pieces of security tooling. And the ones running on AWS are saying, oh, actually, this S3 bucket is publicly readable. That's a no bueno thing. We need to change it. Now, you're at a crossroads at this very particular point. A, the security person can go in and fix the S3, you know, whatever the warning is directly. That's one option in a very simple case. But if it was provisioned via Terraform, that doesn't really solve the problem, right? And so you need to go into where the code that is tied back to and be able to update that appropriately. You need insights to tie both the live environments and security issues into very particular lines of code to have a really proper holistic solution that everyone can understand. And that's where... Yeah, I can imagine that you're squash, squashing the S3 buckets and they just keep coming back, right? right. Like, yeah. uh, and like, that's where I think some of the boing, disconnect boing, is. Boing. <laughs> that's where some of the disconnect lives though in these real world environments. Or you end up with like weird infrastructure drift, like people change some stuff in the live environments. It's like, there's just a disconnect. And I can just imagine though, like some security person going, who the f*** keeps setting this thing to public, right? <laughs> and it's actually automated. Right, I mean... That must have happened, right? I'm, like, sure, that's, I'm sure that's happened in a real world environment yeah. before. So Sneak, you know, I, I've been doing this for a long time, right? So I have a tendency to think of companies like Sneak as like, oh yeah, that that new company that does that that code security stuff. And, you know, Sneak isn't a new company anymore, right? Like this is not a startup sector anymore, right? Companies like Sneak and its competitors, they are very well established. They have huge market valuations, right? Tons of customers. It is the way to do things. So let me ask you though, like, we, we sort of know that developers acknowledge and, and businesses acknowledge that they need to use tooling like this. But how's the tooling changing, right? Like what does what the future of it look like? Now, you know, we had one of your colleagues on the show a short time ago who was pitching, uh, you know, some interesting stuff actually about how to secure infrastructure as code. So that's one area where Sneak has pushed its, its products into being able to deliver on that, which... Cool idea, uh, honestly. But like, where else can a company like Sneak go? Is it more a case of just incremental improvements in the core tooling or is there more that's going to happen here? Like, I'm just curious to get your sense for where all of this is going. So I think there's a few interesting things. There's some that are technical and some that are cultural, like in the tools itself. So the first thing, let's talk about the technical things that are changing. Um, definitely uh, the way the tooling is going right now is shifting in the direction of being able to tie both your static code. Like if we take a look at the code on your disk today, we can see your code, your dependencies, everything there. That's fine. But being able to tie that into your live environments of things that are running and understand what particular functions are being called on which particular parts of your stack, how do those things talk to each other and how do we tie security issues from the live environment back to your uh, particular line of code that technology is rapidly improving right now. Um, so we've just GA'd our very first like cloud security product, which I think is what my coworker Drew was talking to you about before. But that is yeah, it was. that yeah. is now in GA as of a couple of days ago, and it is really cool. And there's a lot of stuff being added to it. The second thing though is being able to provide more automated fixes. Because here's the thing, right? 
and people don't talk about this very much, I feel like, but when you have security- Yeah, you can point at, point at a piece of code and say, that's a problem. But unless you're actually suggesting a simple fix, which often, you know, if you put in the work, you're going to be able to do it. Exactly. That's the thing. Like yeah. the security tooling is not useful in finding vulnerabilities. That's not the, the part that's useful of security tooling. The useful part is fixing security vulnerabilities. That's what people, that, at the end of the day, that's what you care about. You want to get rid of the things, not just find it. And there's a lot of tools that help find vulnerabilities, but very few tools that show you how, how to fix them yourself. And there's even fewer tools that actually fix them for you. And that's where Sneak is headed. We're trying to use like machine learning and a lot of analysis on custom code, open source code, et cetera, to be able to eventually give you exact code fixes that we are very confident are going to fix your problem so that you don't even need to, you know, go through this whole educational step of learning about this vulnerability, understanding all the context in your mind of this line of code and all the things around it. Like there's a lot of work still to be done there to get to that level, but that is what we are, uh, investing heavily in, I would say. I mean, I mean, that's, that's ambitious, right? Like I, I, I dig it. Um, it's an idea that I would have thought years ago was, was awful, but like it's, it's 2022 now. And I can see absolutely that's, um, that's ambitious and worthy, but it is funny when we talk about machine learning, uh, you know, the, the immediate thing that springs to mind, what did, what did GitHub call it? Like Copilot or something? Yeah. Copilot. Yeah. I mean, that was hilarious, right? Because they did train a machine learning data set on bad code and, um, you know, quite often, and I'm sure they've ironed it out a bit since they first launched it, but how do you avoid that situation, right? Like, how do you use machine learning to write better code unless you have a training set that you know is good? So, I'm just just personally curious about so, that. So this is where it gets actually really interesting. So if you think about those two problems, we actually have a massive advantage in the security community to do a better job at this, I would say. And the reason why is because exactly what you just said, there is no quantifiable way to measure the quality of code, right? Like there's no, there's no benchmark or metric where you say this particular piece of code is a good piece of code. It's, it's, it's great, but there are, but I guess, but I guess you can say this piece of code doesn't throw warnings as per our scanning engine. That's right? exactly and, and that's, so, I mean, that puts you in a good position. So you, there, there are ways to quantifiably say this piece of code does not have this type of vulnerability or this, or this vulnerability because the detection engines now are so good that we can reliably throw up these, these warnings. So what we can do is we can take a look at code and say, does it match any of these known problems that are very prevalent in different places? And we can use that information. And we can also use the information of like, like looking at a lot of projects that it used to have a vulnerability in a particular place and then don't after a particular change was made. And what changed? We can compare those diffs and yeah. we can yeah, use yeah, that yeah. as a training set over millions and millions of projects to help make these recommendations. And by the way, this is not something that we like are, are doing for people just yet. Like that's not in the product uh, for custom code you're writing, but that is something that we are definitely trying to get, get released and, you know, get out there. It's, it's a really, it's going to be, I think a very big change in the industry in the next five years when things like that become commonplace. Yeah. I mean, I feel like people will be quick to criticize an initiative like that but the people who criticize it are the sort of people who know how to write secure code. Do you know what I mean? Whereas what you're really trying to do is make improvements at scale, right? And that's that's hard. It's a different challenge to just writing a, a good, you know, project. The, you know, the other thing too is uh, there's a lot of people that are working on this and you're right. There's, there's two different classifications. There's like security professionals that are doing this, uh, you know, at companies and they're, they're great at it, right? Then there's developers like, like me and what I would consider a lot of other developers out there where security isn't their main thing. They're, they're doing other stuff. Like security is, it's not an afterthought necessarily, but it's not the main focus they have. And 
I think there's some great initiatives happening literally right now to improve this. Like the Open Source Security Foundation, the OpenSSF. Uh, we we are a partner of the OpenSSF. We do a lot of work with them together and things, but they have some great projects. And one of their projects is specifically focused around how do we empower developers, just open source developers all around the world and give them security tools and knowledge and fixes and real world security remediation advice to help improve these projects that people just don't have expertise in. And there's way more of people like that that need help than there are at these large companies that are fully resourced and able to do these things. And so I, there's definitely been like a trend in the industry in the last couple of years moving in that direction of how do we build the developer security story out more. And, and that's personally why I work here at Sneak because I strongly believe in that. And I'm like a huge fan of giving developers the tools to like fix the stuff themselves and make it better in a, in a more scalable way, I guess. I mean, it's pretty clear you've got the right job. Uh, I'll just say that having spoken to you for a while now. Um, now look, uh, you're standing up an event too, which is, you know, kind of like, I guess what people would call a, call a hackathon, uh, of sorts. It's almost like a bug bounty thing, but there's no money. There's like t-shirts involved, but the goal is really about getting people involved and creating a bit of a community. Like, uh, tell us about it. I can't remember what it's called, but yeah, tell us about it. Yeah. So our event is called the big fix. So the next one we're going to be running is February of 2023, the entire month. And the way it works is there's two parts to it. First of all, there's like this month long thing. So you can go to the Big Fix website, you can Google it, you can sign up. And what, what you do is you basically say, I am going to fix at least one security vulnerability in an open source project. So what you do is you go, you find any open source project, you fork it, you have your own copy of it, it doesn't matter what it is. You can use tools like Sneak to help find vulnerabilities in projects and fix them, or you can use any other tooling you want, it doesn't matter. But what we do is we track and we see what are the fixes you actually made to these projects? And based on the type of fix you made, so let's say we found that you know, you're a Java developer and you contributed a log4 shell fix into this popular Java library. That was a critical vulnerability and so maybe we give you 10 points for a critical vulnerability. So you can, have a, you can compete in a leaderboard. You can see how many fixes you're making against other people that are participating. It's really fun. I mean, it's like a, it's like a bug bounty program for stuff that doesn't, have, doesn't actually pay bounties, right? And, and more oriented around, you know, good deeds and, and vibes, right? Yeah, and the whole thing, there's two purposes. One, get a free sh limited edition shirt. You know, like that's always fun, you know, collecting shirts and stuff. But the real thing is how do we teach developers about security and get them excited. You know, like how do you bring people together? There's like a discord server, people share lots of stuff. There's thousands of people that did this last time and it was really fun watching people break up into teams and help each other solve issues and helping each other find projects that they could work on together. It was super motivating to watch these people go. And the, the most fun part I would say is at the very end of the month. So the last day of February, we always do it on the very last day, we have a 24 hour live stream. And the 24 hour live stream it's supposed to be accessible to literally everyone, but it's set up like one of those old school telethons that we used to have here in the US where people'd raise money for a cancer charity or something. And they would say, they'd have entertainers on and then they'd have a host who would say, you know, yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we need yeah, you yeah. to call in now and donate an extra $50. We need to get to the $100,000 goal to help you know, beat this, this, this cancer, or fund this cancer research. Well, our thing is we want people to call in and share their security stories, get online and actually fix vulnerabilities right now. 
and learn about. But are you going to have like Kermit the Frog or someone? Like, do you get do you get like a good? Uh, is Big Bird going to be on the telethon? We have a lot of great people on there. Last year we had a bunch of famous developers and security people on. We do some segments that are interviews. Some are just entertainment. Some are educational. Some are like partners, like amazing tech companies like Atlassian and Sysdig and all these cool people, all doing really neat stuff, showcasing cool things they've been working on and. You know, there's just so many fun things to go into. And so that's the big fix in a nutshell. But if you want to do it, I highly recommend it, especially if you don't know anything about security. It is a great way to get your foot in the door and learn some stuff and just have fun. All right, Randall Deggs, thank you so much for uh, joining me for this conversation. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, I've learned a lot. And uh, yeah, cheers. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. And I will happily be listening to future episodes of the show. 